Welcome to Weapon of Choice, a podcast where creatives across mediums give us insight into the weaponry of their art. Each episode, you'll be hearing an interview with an artist who uses their art as a weapon of choice for social change and disruption, visibility and justice, cultural critique and resistance, among other things that ignite social consciousness and community action. These artists will tell us about their journeys toward the battles they are fighting, how they design, sharpen, and develop their artistic weapons to strike a blow against injustice in the world. I'm Tommy Franklin. And I'm Andrew Benda. It's good to have you back. Uh, it's good to be back. Yeah, you've been, man, I feel like you've been globetrotting, or if not globetrotting, nation-trotting. You've been <laughs> in and out of town these last few weeks, and yeah, yeah. you know, it's, uh, you know we, we edit, we're editing through email and trying to get these podcasts up, and it's working out, and it's just, I, I just love sitting down with you, having a beer with you, so has, have you, you know, you've been out of town, like, where have you been, and, you know, has anything, uh, when you've been taking these little trips, has anything really been inspiring you or making you think about the world a little differently? Oh man, great question. So yeah, I've just been mostly running back home, seeing old friends, and that's something that I always think about is like maintaining those lifelong meaningful relationships with people and like the effort that that takes. Uh, I'm really struck by that. I'm blessed to have a lot of old friends that I have, we have somehow over, over the years kept really close contact. Uh, and that's an effort, man. Like that, that takes like, we've scheduled these kind of these fall weekends, um, as early as like March and April, because, mm-hmm. you know, everybody's schedule is different. Everybody's mm-hmm. working now. Some people got kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes a lot. So we, you know, in April, we'll start a conversation of what's your fall like. And then you put that, you put that weekend in and you, you don't mess with it. Right. That's a, mm-hmm. that's sacred. Um, and I've just, it's always been worth it. It's like that commitment to those people have have always been worth it and it's just amazing to like evolve with each other and continue to push each other personally professionally yeah has it uh re-energized you on the like perhaps creative side the personal side oh absolutely uh just a couple weekends ago i played music with uh with an old friend who we 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 hadn't played music together in a long time and we were sending each other back and forth all summer like iphone recordings and just getting together and sharing Getting to share that space again just magnified that that love of music because it like it calls back to everything we'd played to in the past, but then you like project into the future all the excitement to continue that. Mm-hmm. Then you realize how possible it is too if you just make something, if you just decide to make something a priority. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the tools are out there for you to for you to be creative with everyone. You know, if you just if you just figure out the scheduling. Yeah, you can make it happen, and that's yeah. It's sort of like it, you kick yourself in the ass because you're like, oh yeah, like we could just send each other recordings over email and piece stuff together. Um, so yeah, that's not the same, though, right? It's not the same. That's why we still keep the weekends. That's why I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> <laughs> but there's like, if you know, some some of it is that instant fire inspiration that happens when two people are together. But then the other part is like, it's just the hard work of getting the stuff done, whether that be yeah. like. So uh, my friend and I sending each other recordings to give feedback or that's you and I sending notes. Yeah. You know, some of it's that that inspiration and some of it's just like committing to getting the work done, too. Yeah. And it feels less like work when you're doing it with the people you love and uh, and believe and, and like we always wake up believing in, you know, our art and what we're trying to accomplish. It's uh, it's been a good journey. Like, I, you know. With musicians and artists and like I have friends that do all kinds of art and you know 
when people are struggling or when I've struggled, like I just say, you know, what are you a painter? Are you you play the guitar? Um, we have to decide that you're a guitarist. You have to decide that you're a painter. Yeah, and, and like like there's a huge hump of just deciding that you're going to do something that you are something. Not Allowing that you're going to do something to take up that space. Right? Yeah, like, like we've decided we're going to make a kick-ass podcast. Like that's that's. That's how we do it with right. just the two of us and no money, you know. Yeah, but yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, Tommy, you're always recommending me great stuff. Oh, every every line of art, um, you know. So, you know, I was gone all weekend, and I'm wondering, huh. what does Tommy got for me now? Huh. What's what's recharging? What's what's been inspiring you? Well, I will say, in the month of October, so in the last two three weeks. It's mostly been music. Um, you know, one of, perhaps my favorite uh, musician in the last couple years uh, is Benjamin Clementine. And uh, I know I put you on the Benjamin, his first album, you know, so eight, good. Eight, eight months ago or something like that. And and uh, he put his new album out, I Tell a Fly. He's, he's this British, French, I don't know what the hell, he's an alien, but... Um, his album came out and I was super excited. And like maybe the same day, eBay's second album also came out. And I'm like, whoo, like I'm in heaven. <laughs> and they both, these are both their second albums. And then they come out and like a few days later, some friends put me onto this cat. I don't know where he's from, some other planet as well. Moses Sumney. And this cat, Moses Sumney, M O S E S, last name Sumney, S U M. N-E-Y. Check out his album. So, so I've been playing Moses. I've been like just fighting it too because yeah, I've been yeah. like, I'm like, Clementine, new album. I got to give it. I got to give it this investment. I love this cat. eBay, they're coming to town next month and I'm invested all the way whether they were coming to town or not. It'll be my third time seeing them. And then every time I'm trying to remind myself to get to those two albums, I just keep coming back to this Moses album. And I've been bumping the shit out of the Princess Nokia album. Oh, oh I just listened to that on my drive. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I say those three albums I mentioned since you're you're up on the Nokia stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, those other three albums I mentioned, I mean, you got to get on that. And, you know, Done. that's the first thing that comes to mind is like music lately um, has been uh, putting me in a good place. So, yeah, you know, but, you know, I have plenty of recommendations for you, <laughs> you know. Excellent. Yeah. Obviously, anything created by David Simon uh, has several social justice themes, what, no matter what era these shows take place in, like The Wire, Treme, and The Deuce is that new show on HBO about, um, you know, the the kind of the, <laughs> it's weird to say, like the porno renaissance of the 70s, you right, know what I mean? Right. But it went from, and it's particularly in this uh, region in Manhattan, um, going from like uh, prostitution in the streets to the to the parlors to the to the you know to the films and there's like a whole interesting history of how um, censorship and the courts and judges in New York used to used to regulate um, obscenity so to speak in in New York and that part of New York and the show kind of like explores a lot of that and then all that goes into that obviously the misogyny and the and the exploitation and the exploitation and the commercial yeah, yeah. sexual exploitation and all of that mess so that's an interesting show um yeah i've only gotten know. into two episodes so far but the nuance to which the writers 
and the production seem to be handling all of that. Mm-hmm. It seems to be masterfully done. Yeah, so I wonder if folks out there are watching that new show because it's hard for, it's hard for shows like that to catch on because sometimes for some reason when you talk about shows that have very specific subject matter, it doesn't seem to catch on. Obviously, we all know why. Yeah, pop culture, you know, obviously uh, controlling a lot of the uh, the waves that um, that you know entertainment platforms are given of popularity. So, oh, and hey, y'all. Before we get into the episode, we want to remind you that we are definitely grateful for the support and for the folks that are listening thus far. We're really excited about where the show is going. We want to continue to grow, continue to get stronger. Yes. We definitely, yes. we definitely need your help along the way. We need you to give us some love in the form of likes on our Facebook page and shares and definitely tell your friends and then bribe them into sharing it if you have to because uh, we need to just... Reach as many people as we can that we believe will enjoy the show. We're not trying to reach the masses, but we are. We do feel like there's people out there who are interested in listening to hear what all of our guests have to say. Um, one big way to help us grow, it's, a, it's an easy thing you can do. You can go on the Apple iTunes or Apple Podcasts and you can give it a five-star review where you'll also be able to rate it. Drop a little line on why you like the show and why you recommend the show. That would be a huge help for us and we appreciate that support as well. On the social media, you have our Instagram that's at, at Weapon of Choice Podcast. On Facebook, also at Weapon of Choice Podcast. And on Twitter, that's at Weapon Choice Pod. So please follow us. Please continue to, to share with your people and uh, do anything to help us grow. And we'll keep trying to bring you the best possible shows we can do. So our guest this week is Ricardo Levens Morales. He describes himself as a healer and trickster organizer disguised as an artist. He was born into the anti-colonial movement in his native Puerto Rico and was drawn into activism in Chicago when his family moved there in 1967. He left high school early and worked in various industries and over time began to use his art as a part of his activism. This activism has included support work for the Black Panthers and Young Lords to participating in or acting in solidarity with farmers, environmental, labor, racial justice, and peace movements. Increasingly, he has come to see his art and organizing practices as means to address individual, collective, and historical trauma. He co-leads workshops on trauma and resilience for organizers, as well as trainings on creative organizing, social justice strategy, and sustainable activism. And we are so happy to have this interview for you today. Should we play it? Let's do it. Uh, My name is Ricardo Levings Morales, and I... My cover story is that I'm an artist. What is your weapon of choice, and what are the battles you are fighting? Well, I would have to say that my weapon of choice I would describe as truth-telling, and that can be expressed in a lot of different ways on different frequencies. And I suppose what you could say is I'm, I'm fighting powerlessness, so that it's not so much necessarily fighting the powers that be, although I certainly do that, but my way of doing that is to try to nurture and reinforce the power inherent in communities and in people. Um, you mentioned before that uh, kids are discouraged from drawing. And, and, you know, to go more into that, like, why weren't you discouraged when so many kids are? I guess my parents hadn't gotten the memo. Mm. You know, so we lived in a very rural um, a community in um, western Puerto Rico and you, when there weren't other fr- you know friends to play I played with the kids across the dirt road 
and with kids at school, which was a little ways down the road. But there was also a fair amount of time to spend alone, and that was spent clamoring over the mountainside, or drawing was another form of entertainment. So I think that worked out for my parents, too. And, you know, when my father went to town, he would just bring back another ream of paper. Um, the towns were not particularly nearby, but if he went to San Juan and on the way back, he'd pick up some shopping. Um, so basically, my instruments at that time were pencil and paper. And my art still reflects that in a way, that my artwork, if you look at most of my pieces, they're essentially black and white art to which color has then been added. If you distract, if you put, took away the color, you would still see all of the outlines and you'd know what's going on. Because I started out doing all of my art in black and white. When did, you know, when did you realize it was a dream and um, how, did, how did it coincide with the tailoring of your art to many of the struggles? Well, I don't think I ever realized it was a dream. It, it was just, just something I did. It just happened. Yeah, it made me feel good. I, it was a good way to tell stories. Um, my sort of uh, pocket way of summarizing it is that I've always done art that felt important to me. You know, so that when I was five, it, it was art about chickens. When I was eight, it was pirates. And since then, it's become resilience in the face of oppression. But yeah, so there was no, no particular moment. When I was 11 when we moved to the States, and that was during a time of mass movements and upsurge, and so I was interested in what was going on around me and would make cartoons or other drawings having to do with that. It wasn't really part of my activism. I got into activism on the ground floor like any other young kid, you know, making signs, planning protest routes, you know, doing school, school walkouts or boycotts, those kinds of things. Um, and only slowly over time did I start using the art as just part of my activism. And in that time, the sensibility was that we all did our part, so that some people might be organizing childcare, some people might be, you know, wheat pasting posters on the sides of the building, somebody else might be making art. There was nothing particularly uh, prestigious about it. And like most, a lot of the artists of you know, my peers, I didn't sign my work. That didn't seem important, right? It was just another way of doing movement work. Mm -hmm. As you, you know, as you absorb those certain politics and sensibilities growing up in that activism atmosphere, you know, with that, with that moment, talk, can you talk about that moment where you walked into school with that black armband and at that moment of controversy, like what did that do for your paradigm of what being a kid is? Yeah, well... I mean, that was the morning that um, Black Panther leader Fred Hampton was murdered by the Chicago police, along with another um, Illinois uh, leader, Mark Clark. Um, they were shot in, um, in Fred's apartment. Um, Fred had been drugged, and uh, he'd certainly been targeted by the FBI and the Chicago police long before that. So when I got up to go to school in the morning, my father told me that Fred, Jim and Fred had been murdered. And so I put on a black armband, took it to school. Um, the teacher asked me to say to the class why I was wearing a black armband. And I said, Fred Hampton was murdered this morning. She said, well, this might be a little hasty to say that. You know, we don't really know what happened. And I said, well, actually, we don't need to know more than we know. Uh, so that was a moment, but it's, and this is true for a lot of, of my life, I think. There are moments that, looking back, I can see the murder of Chairman Fred as being an important turning point, but it didn't feel like it at the time. It's not like it, it didn't shake up my worldview. I understood who the police were. 
Earlier that year, they had murdered Manuel Ramos, a young leader of the uh, Young Lords uh, organization, which was allied with the Panthers. Manuel was 20 years old, but Chairman Fred was 21 when he was killed, right? It was, you know, but to me, I was 13, 14. So to me, those, those were the old guys, right? Those were, you know, big grown-up folks. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it really is about an accumulation of consciousness. And it was at that moment that I shifted into higher gear instead of simply attending protests, going to occupied buildings, um, being in meetings. I actually began more actively organizing. Join, I joined an organization first, later other ones. And I think I, I kind of credit that time as the shift from being a young activist into being an actual organizer, somebody who really was goal-oriented in terms of what are the specific things we want to bring about in the short term and how is that tied to the long term. Um, I had grown up with parents involved in the Puerto Rican independence movement so that the anti-colonial language that groups like the Panthers and the Young Lords used made perfect sense to me. It was a very smooth transition to you know, see myself as part of those or allied with those struggles. Mm. When did it shift into oh, this is... This is now my voice, my vehicle, my weapon for mm-hmm. that change. Yeah. So I would count that as being probably in the late summer and fall of 1970. Um, I had been doing – I started doing a little bit of that. Um, actually, I wish I had a copy of it, but the first flyer that I remember illustrating was actually a fundraiser for the local Panther chapter. Um, in 1970, I imagine it would have been. Um, wouldn't you know it was a pig roast? Uh, <laughs> let that sink in for a moment. But um, anyway, it was kind of a cool cross-hatched drawing, and I wish I had it just because of you know the, the timing. Um, that summer, I also did a woodcut of Angela Davis, which I still am distributing because it turned out really pretty good, even though I was only 14 at the time. It's the best thing I did that year anyway, the only one that's a real keeper. And that was while she was on the run. She was on the FBI's most wanted list and was in hiding at that time. And so I put that up around different places. It didn't have any words on it at the time, but everybody knew what it meant, right? Was, you know, you got a friend here is what it meant. Um, so that summer I was at um, – with my parents, I accompanied my parents to kind of an activist training sort of retreat in uh, Vermont and – you know, was really exposed to literature from around the world. Um, the um, Stonewall riots had only happened a year before the uprising there, um, and the Black Panther Defense Committee that I was a part of would sometimes meet in the home of the leader of the local Gay Liberation Front, and women from the Women's Graphics Collective of the Women's Liberation Union would come down and help us plan guerrilla theater. There was all of this cross-fertilization going that seemed very organic, um, because one of the um, one of the things that's missing now that actually was in place then was a more widespread idea that we were part of a movement. It wasn't like you're, someone's in the tenants' rights movement, someone's in the gay liberation movement, someone is in the black power movement. Is no, actually, these were different fronts in one movement. And I think that's something that the, the, has been broken by the era of the nonprofits. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, at, at this period in Vermont, I was, started reading magazines from the liberation movements in Africa, 
from other struggles around the world and also seeing how art was used in different movements. So after that, I remember going back with the idea in my mind, I want to be part of um, an arts collective doing political art and poster work. By then, I had already been exposed to the Cuban posters, and I knew that those looked pretty cool, and I knew what silkscreen printing was. So in that time, I began being a little bit more deliberate. Sure. Um, and there's a number of steps along the way. In um, 1971, 72, somewhere in there, maybe a little later, I found myself uh, working in a factory in New England where my sweetheart and I had moved and engaged with other people in dialogue that happened in the form of doodles on the walls of the factory, right? Mm. You know, interesting way to have debates going on. Mm. Um, from there, I moved to Boston and started really using the art much more intentionally as part of a union drive um, so that I would illustrate the, um, the newsletter of the workers. I was part of the internal organizing committee as a janitor in that hospital. Mm -hmm. So in the fall of 1976, I moved to the Twin Cities and already with a clear intention to do some organizing around this. And in, the, in 1979, um, a few years after that, pulled together uh, with a number of other artists who had political commitments, and we formed the Northland Poster Collective. And that was really a full-fledged full commitment to be doing this as a primary form of political work. Never thought of it as a career or something you could make a living off of. But it was sort of the culmination of a number of projects where I had set up screen printing equipment in the garage where I was living or in spaces like that and begun making it available to local organizations. One of the first things that interested me when I moved to Minneapolis was to raise enough money to go back and visit Puerto Rico, visit my community. And that was my way of finding out what was going on here. By then, we're talking about um, the mid to late 70s where there'd been a chemical shift in the country and where a few years earlier you could walk into any city and see signs up for this protest, that meeting, this movement center. All of a sudden, that, a lot of that had kind of disappeared with the collapse of the anti-war movement and, so, and the repression against some of the more cutting-edge struggles um, like the Black Power, um, the American Indian Movement, um, Chicano power, those kinds of things. So it was harder to find groups, and I just set out to find what I could and said, hey, give me a couple of hundred bucks, and I'll design a poster and give you 200 copies of it. And doing that, I made contact with what activists there were and got together enough money to be able to go home and visit. So what is, I've never heard that before, a chemical, in that way, like a chemical shift when you mm -hmm. went back. What, can you say more about... Yeah, well, I think of struggles as having, and each one having an emotional chemistry. Um, and that really determines to a large degree whether it's going to be successful or not, or at least sustainable. So, and that chemistry really is based on hope, that movements that are inspirational and hope-based uh, have the capacity to strengthen and regenerate and restore people as part of the struggle. Movements that are simply responding to atrocities, to criminality of various sorts, where they do something horrible and we go out and protest that, you know, that's an important tactical thing to do in the course of a struggle, but if that's all there is, it ends up being depleting. 
And one of the things that I find heartbreaking is I know that a lot of young activists today actually think that that's the, what happens in movements, that it's inherent, that you go out and you drain yourself until you can do it no more. Then you go into a self-care space and lick your wounds until you're regenerated enough to return to a dysfunctional model of organizing. To reopen the wounds. To reopen the wounds after if right. you push yourself again. And so the pieces, the organizing that I get involved in is always what I call hope-based organizing. I want to be able to give people the experience that it doesn't have to be that way. And for me, coming into the struggle as a teenager, my own experience was that it was regenerative. You know, I came into the States um, at age 11. I left home at 15. I dropped out of high school at 16. And for me, when I reached out like everybody does for self-medication, what I found was movements uh, people's movements that really were a form of healing because there were struggles to restore power mm. to people whose power had been stolen from them, and that's really a definition of trauma, trauma healing. So having had that experience, and, I'm, and I know that that's not true for everybody. I mean, those movements were complex, had a great deal of, of beauty and power in them, a great deal of dysfunction and error and confusion as well. So I understand that my experience isn't universal, but it did implant in me the idea that you can be involved in struggle for the long term and not be burning out all the time. Yeah. Burnout is not inherent. I've really been steadily engaged in movement struggle um, for, give me another two years, it'll be 50 years, and I don't burn out. That doesn't mean I don't get tired. That doesn't mean that it can't be hard. But the only times I've been not actively engaged really has been times when, for example, I was working in a little factory in rural New Hampshire, and there just weren't much opportunities around. So I drew a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I kept it and, and read and, and just tried to keep up with things, pre-internet, of course. What's the healing component, um, you know, along those lines of... Uh, Self-care healing having to do with you creating your art, and then what is, how have you seen art, on top of that, how have you seen art help to heal and, uh, re, you know, regenerate hope mm -hmm. in the movements? Well, I think that, I mean, for me, it's always been a, a form of expression, and we humans are peculiar that way. It seems that we only really know we exist when we're expressing how we exist, Right, and we only feel that that's meaningful when somebody else is paying attention. You know, the power of witnessing—they call it in in trauma healing, right—of somebody simply listening or watching or paying attention, hearing your story, and not trying to shoot it down. It's very powerful. There's a real hunger to be heard, right? And it's like holding a a, a mirror up, right? If if the mirror that's held up to me by commercial culture by the movies, by advertising, is that I'm really pretty messed up and inadequate unless I buy this or that product, then I'm not going to feel all that great about myself, right? So that a, a bottom line for transformative art is that it has to reflect people's dignity. It has to be respectful in some way. It has to help. It's not, just a, it's not an actual mirror. It's an, a mirror in which you can edit what gets reflected back. And so I edit out all the toxicity and leave in the things that people have forgotten about themselves, mm. about their own power, their own beauty, their own capacity. Mm -hmm. And that's self-healing in, in other ways, too, because when I do that and I hear back from people that it made a difference in their life, that it's helped them 
believe in themselves, that's a message to my immune system, my emotional immune system, that healing is possible, right? You know, I, it's, you, we're all good at helping other people a lot better than ourselves, and we have to see that reflection reflected back at us as well. I saw that uh, two-minute clip on the Second Grade Liberation Program. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us about the Second Grade Liberation Program? Well, basically it's the idea that for a program for transformative social change to really get traction and be meaningful, it has to be explainable by a second grader, right? Because changing the world really requires what I call uh, a mass ideological migration. People have to move from where they are and how they see the world to a different standpoint and see it differently, right? Um, so the question, how do you reach that, given that the narratives people have are so different, right? And it's at the narrative level, things are in conflict with each other. So you've got to go deeper to a deeper level of meaning. So the examples that I use for the um, second grader program would be nobody gets seconds until everyone has had firsts, right? Which is a revolutionary construct, right? But it's something that most people have learned at the breakfast table or will relate to, re relate to and resonate with in some way or another, right? And then you can go on to there. It's all very common sense, things that people know but have forgotten or think that can only be implemented in a small circle like your own family but have no application to the world, right? Don't break shit if you can't fix it. Don't take things that you have no claim to, uh, et cetera, et cetera, right? You know, be, be a healer, not, a, not, a, you know, not an abuser, right? There's ways in which we can go down to the level of values and vision to that geological level where we have a lot in common with other people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, that's something that I credit my time as a young person hitchhiking around, um, you know, to help me learn, right? Because I would be picked up by people who the only thing that they were going for is to have somebody to talk to for the next 200 miles so they don't fall asleep, right? And they came from across the, the political and social gamut and spectrum, right? Um, you know, from people fleeing their home city, you know, because of violence to, um, you know, sort of the black sheep kids of ruling class families, right, all across the board. But the two commitments I had made to myself was that I was not going to lie about what I believed. I was already a radical young scaper, and I wasn't going to get myself killed. Right? So how do you so reconcile those two <laughs> you know, you know, conflicting goals, right? And what I found what I had to do was find out what I really had in common. So the story I tell a fair amount because it illustrates it the most clearly is of a very right-wing military colonel who picked me up, as he said, because when he was a, a GI, he used to hitchhike home on leave and felt that he owed a debt, so he would pick up other people, right? And my challenge was to figure out what was the truth, what was the layer of truth that we could both stand on, right? Where were, where were our feet planted on the, same, on the same geological level? So that what I found, it would be something like he wanted his kids to grow up in a better world than he grew up in, and he didn't see it happening. So fear for their future. Um, he had been raised with all of the symbolism of George Washington and the cherry tree and the U.S. as a city on the hill and all of this stuff, and he sees people burning the U.S. flag and spitting on the things, the, the narratives that he believed in, right? You have, you know, people undermining what he always learned in church 
about sexual propriety and the sacredness of certain things, and he sees that being scorned and treated with contempt by other people, right? So that he blames queer folks and dark folks and non-Christian folks and immigrants, right? But it's, not, it's the narratives that are toxic, right? The underlying impulse are pretty common, pretty common values, right? So in that famous case of... Um, was it befriended by the enemy? I can't remember what it was called, where a Klan leader and a black community activist yeah. became friends, right? In, um, I think it was North Carolina? I believe so. And the way I interpreted that story, right, they became friends because they were, by circumstance, ended up on the same school reform committee, right? And when I look at the way this guy changed his ideology, right, and ended up being an anti-racist partner with this woman, um, what I, the way I have interpreted that is, in fact, it did not ref- represent a change of values. Mm. It represented a change of narrative, and it represented a better offer. So that he always believed, if you, you know, look at sort of what he said or his early statements, he really wanted what was best for all people, for all human beings. The problem is his definition of what was a human being was pretty narrow. It was only white folks, and only white folks like, like his white folks, right? So what his connection with this woman, just sharing complaints about their teenage sons, right? Oh, man, that's, that's happening with my kid too, right? And the, that humanization simply widened the horizon of people who he could think of as family, mm. right? So, and I see that a lot when I look at people whose worldview has shifted tremendously into its opposite even, is that somebody has given them a better story for the pursuit of those values that for the most part really haven't changed, Mm. right? So how do we address those values? That's the second grader program, right? How do we articulate what we believe in a way that isn't hung up on the superficial? You know, people talk about how do we build bridges, right? Between far right Trump people and far left, I'm, I'm not into building bridges. I'm into going down to the level of the chasm that that bridge is supposed to be built across and go even deeper and say, where is the ground where we both have something in common? That's where alliances can be made, where strategic alliances and actual solidarity can be built. Not on the level of saying, you know, you believe in Hitler and I believe in Che or Gandhi or, you know, Ella Baker. And so we're going to compromise and meet halfway. No, there's no halfway that is not just as toxic as as the poisons they're peddling, right? Mm, yeah. But we can find out, like the pa- Black Panthers asked of, of the white street gangs in Chicago, they, we can find out why are they hurting and take it from there. Not how do we mess these people up or how do we compromise with them. Thank you for that hitchhiking analogy because what you articulated around that strategy for survival in essence as a hitchhiker is is kind of like how I try to describe my way of surviving my three years in prison, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, so. How does art undo or maybe present better narratives? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, the toxic narrative, they take many forms, right? right? There are lies about what people are, you know, that... Um, it's a dog-eat-dog world that, you know, survival means grabbing what you can because someone else is going to get it from you, mm-hmm. that people other than you, and this is, of course, a, particularly a narrative from well, either the beneficiaries of either racism or other forms of power that I'm better than other people or that they're worse than, than you are. Uh, I mean, those are all the different time, types of toxicity, yeah. you know, the toxicity of, of patriarchy and misogyny. It's for ways to make oneself feel powerful 
in a world that makes you feel powerless, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what a lot of oppressive behavior is. So that really, when we think, when I think as an organizer and think strategically, um, most of the people who present to us as our enemies don't have a real stake in being our enemies. They're either you know, fooled, scared, bribed, forced, blackmailed, tricked in one way or another mm. into seeing us as a big threat. You know? And that's small comfort if they're you know, aiming a gun at you or throwing a brick at you. But in the long term, it's vitally important to understand that, to be able to break those links that tie them to the people who really do have it out for us mm-hmm. because they have mostly a financial stake in keeping other people from flourishing because flourishing is expensive and they don't want resources spent on that, right? Mm-hmm. Exploitation is a lot more congenial to them. Um, so, yeah, so the, the, the narratives are what hold a system in place, mm-hmm. right? And we're coming to a moment now where the empire that has, the United States has been is really well past its exp- expiration date. It reached its peak in the mid-1970s. It's been on the decline ever since, and that's created deepening financial crises so that things like the Wall Street bubble, you know, just sort of making money off of selling things that don't exist. I mean, that's really what <laughs> the economy comes down to in some, on some levels, right? And as a result of that, of the 1%, just wanting to, desperately trying to up its profit rates, they don't want to share with the rest of us so much anymore, Right. They're not as interested in the nonprofit system that they used to fund just to keep people from blowing their top. It's like, who cares anymore? They're, they're pathologically narrow-minded in that way, you know, the current iteration of them, right? So that means that the story that they've been, you know, you know imposing all this time, that we're all in it together, mm-hmm. you know, especially white folks, right? But, but really this is, you know, a, a rising tide raises all boats. Things are just going to keep getting better and better. Um, that's kind of collapsing, right? And it's unclear what's going to fill the void, right? What fills the void are its alternative stories and art, whether it's visual art like I do, whether it's storytelling, whether it's dance, whether it's film, is one of the ways in which a society talks to itself, mm-hmm. right? Amilcar Cabral, um, an African liberation leader, described culture as the collective personality of a people, Right, the collective personality of the people. And I would add to that that the arts are our collective dream life. Mm. Right? So that when you put your head on your pillow at night, whatever you did not want to face or think about during the day, it's gonna be waiting for you. As soon as you close your eyes, right? Dreams don't lie. You know, they can tell you some pretty crazy stories, right? But there's some truth embedded in there, right? And so that's why dictatorships always want to control the arts. It brings up the things that cause discomfort, the things that people don't want to hear about, right? Mm-hmm. And like anything that comes out, some of it can come out in, in damaging ways as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, some of it can come out in healthy ways. But what, the way I view my art is that it's a form, I view it as pro, a progress report on my relationships with different communities, right? So the art I create is meant to address what the, the traumas, the injuries, Um, whatever it is that's holding a community back from feeling powerful. And in some cases, it's just knowing the history of their own people, their own community, right? In other cases, it's it's humor. It's showing that actually management is 
stupid people messing things up in this workplace. It's not the workers. In other places, it's simply validating and honoring people who are looked at with disdain and contempt and saying no one's disposable, right? Because if you say that against the people who are most targeted, then you're really saying it about everybody. And that is profoundly revolutionary, right? Even though it might seem, you know, sort of smooth and gentle. So part of it is looking at the lies, understanding the lies and the damage they do, and then figure out how to express that. Sometimes it can be done very simply with an image. Sometimes it requires words. I have one poster that shows the cutest toddler you've ever seen, and the, the words are children are not an investment in the future. They are children, right? And I've had people who work in the area of children's rights and trying to get resources for kids come up to me after a presentation and say, dang, you know, I didn't realize I was monetizing kids when making my pitch to Congress or, or you know, to state funders or whatever, right? But, you know, the, you, people find themselves using terms like children are our most precious natural resource. They are an investment in the future. If we invest in our children, we will reap dividends later, right? So that monetizing them make them important, right? Mm-hmm. And the problem is that that kind of short-term think- thinking can actually win you something. It can gain you some people who say, oh, well, if they're like stocks and bonds, and then I'll, here, here's some funding, right? But you're making the uh, cultural environment more toxic by validating that way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Because what you're doing is you're saying, well, if something else turns out to be more profitable in the future, too bad, kid, right? You know, we got a better investment that'll reap bigger dividends. You know, so how do we use like our guns. struggle? What's that? <laughs> like guns. There you go, right. Yeah. You know, or currency exchanges or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it is that's going to bring in the most profit at the, at the moment, right? So truth-telling, really, <clears throat> is what, what I push for, and I differentiate that from messaging. Right? Messaging is when you figure out where somebody is at so you can get them to do something. Truth-telling is that you figure out what they're hungry for mm-hmm. so you can set them on fire, right? Nobody mm-hmm. puts their life on the line for you know, a 5% reduction in police violence. You, know, you have to have a vision that, that can inspire people, right? And that goes beyond messaging. Now, messaging is important. It's how you formulate the truth. Mm-hmm. It's how you deliver it. But... I see a lot of these nonprofits, unions, and other groups messaging without truth-telling, and that just becomes poisonous, yeah. you know, inevitably. Or even, like, softening up the language. You know, you mentioned nonprofits saying, for example, civil rights community, women's rights community yeah. versus that word movement. That's right. And, and around organizing— Yeah, the House of Labor instead of the labor <laughs> movement. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and around organizing, when we're thinking about, like— if we're in pursuit of certain tactics or actions, like as in, you know, when I was in, when I was doing some organizing and I had like a creative idea for a particular action, um, like creative, not like let's do this different creative, but like mm-hmm. let's implement some art here creative. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I got I would get pushed back, and I'm sure so many people get pushed back, and a lot of it has to do with certain folks are scared of that that boldness, mm-hmm. making the art the powerful. Uh, you know, the powerful arm of a particular action. And, you know, so creative organizing, art, you know, I see art as a cornerstone of the movement. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you see that as well? You know, why should it be a cornerstone? You know, in shaping powerful narratives to motivate and mobilize people, your, your art tells these stories, but they're not necessarily a forum or a nonprofit community meeting, yet it feels each time any piece 
uh, of yours that, that we look at can be much more powerful than some of those spaces. So what are those spaces missing on the creative side? Well, I stay away from those spaces. So I don't know if I even want to talk about them, but I can talk about us, right? So um, the struggle for change is always a struggle over consciousness, right? Because people don't do things because they're the right thing to do, and they don't go and eat certain foods because it's good. They do things because they think it's the right thing to do, because they believe that food might be good, right? So that what we believe on the inside creates the landscape that we actually are, are moving through, right? And culture is kind of the shared inner landscape of a larger group of people, right? So that art is going directly to that landscape. It's speaking to the inner person who responds to the world through the senses, through vision, through sensuality, through hearing, and it can bypass the intellectual roadblocks that would res can resist um, any challenge to their belief systems, right? So that, that's really what the art is about, you know? And it's really strange to be in places and to have been in places where people don't recognize that, right? I mean, even in the U.S., in the southern U.S., um, organizers there n understand that an organizer's toolkit includes being able to lead songs and make some, you know, kick-ass barbecue and give somebody a shoulder rub when they need it, right? Mm -hmm. So it's organizing the human being, organizing the whole organism, right? That's, we, we exist on all these different levels. You're not going to see a protest in Puerto Rico without congas and tambourines. It's like, what are you thinking, right? Didn't you say this was going to be a picket line? <laughs> and there's no music, right? You know, so it's the same thing as we see with struggles like Standing Rock, where spirituality moved to the center. Well, music and art is spirituality. You know, it doesn't have to be grounded in a particular religious or spiritual framework. But it's speaking to the spirit, right? And it's about that connection between, between me and other people, right? And connection to the wider universe. I, I really appreciated you you articulating the the monetization of like children are an investment, you mm -hmm. know, and how that's an inherently um, terrible framework to work in because it what it sets us up for down the road road and what that kind of sets up what we're valuing of the situation is. is um, so can you talk a little bit about how maybe w when we are trying to make change, we feel like those are the frameworks that we have to behave in, mm -hmm. and we have to meet them at this level of oh I have to talk in this way and. Right. How do we reclaim that space of, no, these things are important? I think it really comes down to a misunderstanding of the world, mm -hmm. right? So that, that kind of short-term organizing, if you want to call it that, um, the equivalent would be you, you know, the desire to grow a crop of tomatoes and being willing to pour all kinds of poisons on the ground in order to get that good crop, you know, chemical fertilizers, insecticides, and so forth, right? Um, or you can grow a crop organically with sustainable methods, companion planting, and building up the soil health. Um, either one can get you tomatoes, and sometimes the poison will get you even more tomatoes that first season. But every year goes by, the, you know, toxic gardening methods deplete the soil more and more. You have to put more and more shit into the ground, and the crop gets worse and worse, whereas with the organic, sustainable methods, you're not just sustaining, you're actually rebuilding and enriching the soil, and it gets better and better, mm -hmm. right? So that in organizing, my mantra is the soil is more important than the seeds. You know, our seeds can be organizing projects, campaigns, whatever it is, right? You know, fundraisers, those are the seeds, right? And see, good seeds don't grow in toxic soil. 
You have to be, farming has to be about improving the soil, not just coming up with a great seed. The right wing has been focused on soil preparation for the last 40 years. And kind of the liberal nonprofits, they're all about um, just getting, you know, some seeds in the ground and putting whatever chemicals they need because they have to have a deliverable by fall so that they can be ready for the next funding cycle and show that they have a track record. You know, so the right wing's been willing to fight battles they knew were going to lose. They were saying crazy shit. They knew it was going to sound crazy to people because they were ha- playing the long game, right? So they lost a lot of battles in order to win the war. Now they run the country, mm-hmm. right? The liberal, I won't even call them the left, but the liberals, nonprofit system and chunks of the left have all been about, no, we, have, we can only fight battles that we're going to win or else people will become depressed and we won't be able to organize them. You know, we can't talk long-term vision because then we won't get funded by the 1%. Because long-term vision does not include the 1% if you're really talking about what communities and people need and what the earth needs. So, um, so that's really the, the key to me is thinking in a bigger scale and not just a narrow scale. Because narrow is not just about getting a deliverable. It's about getting a deliverable for a very narrowly defined target audience, right? Um, because once you start making horizontal links, once your community starts making alliances with other communities, then you have to frame it frame the problems in a larger framework. And then once again, you're stepping on the toes of some pretty wealthy interests and they're the ones that fund the foundations, right? So breaking out of that trap is really a question of imagination and vision, right? I mean, it's not by accident that the Occupy movement, the Dreamers, um, Black Lives Matter, Standing Rock, none of those emerged from the nonprofit world. None of those emerged because they were paid organizers having one-on-ones. They emerged in the spaces outside of those constraints, right? And that's where the wind of change comes from. It always comes from the margins. You know, people on the inside can open the windows and let that wind in and amplify it and help shift their organization, but that's not where it's going to initiate. That's not where it will originate. What are you tired of hearing? We have to redouble our efforts. (laughs) Yep, because... I don't think we do. I just think that we need to understand that we're surrounded by low-hanging fruit. You know, that um, doing what we're doing twice as hard and twice as fast is not necessarily the way to get results, right? There may be some circumstances in which that's the case, but we mostly need to do things differently. If you're in a hamster wheel and you're running twice as fast, you're not actually moving anywhere any faster, you're just expending energy. You're not building power, you're expending energy, right? So it's not about redoubling efforts. When the monarch butterfly migrates to Mexico, it doesn't just go flapping through every gust of wind and getting buffeted about. It finds an updraft, rises to a level of about 13,000 feet till it finds a current that it feels is the right one to take them um, in the direction they want to go, and they just ride that thing down to Mexico. Right? They just float, right? So it's really understanding our relationship with the, our environment, right? So that um, the butterfly can get there expending very little energy by tuning into what's there. And it's the same with us. There are ways in which power flows through a community, with money goes through a community, ways in which there are patterns of resistance and resilience and complacency and complicity, right? When we understand those, it's a question of where do we put energy where it'll get the most results, where do we put the acupuncture needle so that it will release the most energy? You know, it's not, oh, I'm not getting a result. I better stab this, this needle deeper into this poor person, right? 
it's all, it can be pretty subtle, but it's about understanding, tuning into our environment and figuring out what is happening so that we can listen and see where the forms of resistance are that we might not even have re- realized were there or that we're resistant, right? But they're always there. So what do you want listeners to know? I, wa- I want them to really to know what they already know. You know, I figured out that in the times when it seems to me that I'm being effective, either through my art, through speaking, through writing, through organizing, it's because in that moment I figured out a way to remind people of what they already know, right? Uh, if something resonates, I mean, think about what that word means, right? If something I said resonates with you, it means you already have strings tuned to that tuning mm-hmm. so that when I strum mine, yours start humming, right? So that it's, it's about recognition more than revelation, right? And what is it that we know about ourselves? What is it that we have forgotten or, or that we don't want to listen to? Well, part of it is how wounded we are, right? One of the things that trauma imposes is a separation from our own body. Why? Because our body's telling us the truth, and we don't want to know that truth. So we figure out all kinds of ways to self-medicate. And it can be drugs. It can be mistreating other people. It can be um, consumerism. It can be TV. It can be, you know, stuffing my face with pasta, whatever. It can be meth, right? Some of these coping mechanisms are deadly, and some of them are benign. Some of them might even be medicinal, right? But we're finding ways to not listen to what our body tells us because then we would have to take action, right? You know, you tune into your body, you become aware if you're wearing shackles, you know, and that puts you in an uncomfortable position Mm -hmm. because then you're either going to have to self-medicate like crazy again or you're going to have to figure out how to remove those shackles, right? So that, yeah, really, I think there's a tremendous amount of knowledge and wisdom embedded in everybody who's listening. And part of it is just to tune into that, right? You know, listen to your intuition, right? Don't give it a free ride. Because intuition's gotten a lot of bad teachers, too. You know, patriarchy has trained us and misogyny and racism and all these things. But deep down inside, there's also some real truth coming through, right? And if we listen, if we test, we'll start being able to distinguish the lies from the truth, right? And retrain our intuition, Mm. you know, so that we can find ways to be liberatory and in solidarity with each other without having to think it through. It just comes naturally. Yeah. Has has anything... you know, come to the States at 11, Chicago, stints on the East Coast, developing around this world of activism and, and in your creativity. Has, has anything ever scared the shit out of you? Hmm. Dang, you would ask a question like that, right? Um, well... I do, I do all this talk, this uh, good talk, this good streak about truth telling, right? But uh, uh, that doesn't mean I don't resort to denial myself. <laughs> you know, I think I tend to shove that aside. But uh, I mean, I've certainly been in some scary situations. Uh, it's hard to cohabit an environment with the Chicago police and not be. Um, I think that more than anything, the things that frighten me the most deeply are. Damage. It's not pain so much as damage, right? A lot of time when we're injured, it hurts like crazy, but what's really making us crazy is we're afraid that our body's going to be permanently damaged, right? Subtract the, the, the fear and the pain isn't as bad. So those are the kinds of things that worry me, right? It's um, like right now, my, own, my homeland of Puerto Rico is going through some really terrible times, some really difficult times, right? And people are rising to the occasion, but against a great weight. You know, Hurricane Maria has destroyed daily life, 
as it once was in Puerto Rico from one day to the next. Um, so the things that scare me most are that there's going to be a period of exodus. A lot of Puerto Ricans are going to have to leave, right? Um, will we be able to create the conditions for them to return, right? That's a scary prospect. I think we will, but the future is uncertain, right? We have a lot of things going for us on the ground to be able to counter the predators' efforts to take over Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. You know, they're already <laughs> rich white developers with suitcases full of cash <laughs> trying to buy land from desperate farmers whose food all got blown out to the ocean, right? So these kinds of moments scare me, right? It's not the, sh the short term so much. It's not what's going to happen in the next 10 minutes. Yeah. But what is, what's going to be happening downstream? How deep are these injuries, right? Mm -hmm. What uh, art are you currently taking in that uh, helps regenerate that hope for you? Hmm. Well, I'm always working on multiple things at once. Um, and... I try to hone in on the things that actually people experience as the most scary and try to reframe it. I mean, reframing narratives is what healing is about, and it's also what movement building is about. Um, right now, I'm finishing up on some commission pieces uh, for other people, mm -hmm. which are fine. You know, that's great, but I'm going to be entering in a period where I'm not taking any more commissions because I do want to do the artwork that speaks most directly to me. And a lot of that is just bringing out pieces of history. You know, telling different stories, um, reframing people's sense of hopelessness, right? You know, sort of taking even a collection of abuses and reframing that into a message of change, right? That's kind of the, my skill as a, as, a, as a healer, as an artistic healer, is doing those kinds of stories. And I want to make clear that um, addressing a story from a standpoint of hope has nothing in common with slapping a smiley face Band-Aid on an injury, Right. It's not about pep talks. It's about actually thinking through, given the understanding, the ecological-based understanding of the world that I have, how can this problem be addressed in a way that will contribute to long-term change for the better? Right. Once I recognize that, I can make art about it. Mm -hmm. Is there anyone's art or music that you're loving that you think people should uh, check out? Well, I don't know that I have any music to prescribe. Yeah. Um, but I can say that, and I've always had very eclectic tastes in, in line with the fact that I've always eavesdropped on other people, mm -hmm. you know, on their communities, right? Um, when there started appearing anthologies of, you know, black women writers in the 70s, well, I read them avidly. When the gay liberation movement emerged after Stonewall, although, you know, I... Um, assessed myself as being a straight person, I read their, their publications. I love sort of tuning into how people think about their own world when they don't think someone is listening, right? And so, um, so and it's similar with music. I love music from everywhere. I know one of the things that, that really had an influence on the way I do art was, um, although I was already starting down that path, was what they call the Nueva Canción movement, the new song movement of Latin America, where people in different countries took the musical traditions of that country and combined it with um, radical and revolutionary poetry into a form that was very accessible to people. And in some countries where literacy was very low, that became a way of bringing messages into the rural areas um, where reading wasn't an option, 
Right. And, but one of the things that really fascinated me about them was that they did not consider themselves to be political musicians or radical musicians. They were people's musicians. Mm. So that it made just as much sense for them to you know, sing a song about you know, the massacre, the military massacre of striking copper miners or a song about how much they love their, new, their newborn daughter, right? I mean, everything is fair game, right? And that's the way I approach art, too. I don't, the boundaries between what is political and what is not are artificial boundaries mostly put into place by enemies, right? You know, the, um, you know when I was coming up, a picture of an interracial couple would have been politically explosive in South Africa, but not raised an eyebrow in Brazil, right? So that it's, what is political depends on what threatens the authorities in any given place. Mm. And rather than saying, oh, well, that's the line, therefore I'm going to stay on the other side of the line to drive them crazy, it's like, no, I'm going to ignore that barbed wire fence altogether. And anything that people need, I'll do wedding invitations, you know, tattoo designs, posters, you know, even fine art stuff if it serves a strategic purpose. Whether it was a parent or a family member or a teacher, um, mm-hmm. what encouragement or words of advice for your artistic exploration has always um, been in the back of your mind, has always stuck in your head? Like, you know, someone, something told you, a phrase they told you. As an artist? Um, I would say the phrase is, um, here, I'm back from town and I brought you some more paper. <laughs> you know, and I say that. Actually, seriously, that um, I was never over-encouraged, right? Because when parents see, oh, kids got talent, and then, oh, here, we've got to get you an art class. Oh, here, you should look at this. You know, it kills the spark, right? They just gave me enough space and, you know, appreciated what I did but didn't make too big a fuss over it. And therefore, I was able to explore it any way I wanted to, right? You know, and that's what I'm—I have to tell parents that a lot, like— don't get involved. It's not your thing, right? You know, you want your kid to grow up and be a masterful, world-famous painter? Leave them alone. You know, know, just let them enjoy it because there's nothing that can drive a kid away from creativity than having it be overly structured too early. We're in Ricardo Levens Morales' studio in Minneapolis, and whether you live here or you're coming to town to visit, you might want to go down to the Stone Arch or the Walker Art Center, make it a top priority to get into this studio and mm. check out mm. the art all throughout here and take some home with you. And the best gift you can ever get, you know, in my opinion, the best gift you can give someone at a reasonable price um, that will last forever is uh, one of the pieces in this studio. So check it out and uh, we'll put that in the show notes for you. Right. And abandon hopelessness, all who enter. <laughs> yes. Because the art that I do is really about um, stimulating our collective and individual emotional immune systems, right? It's about strengthening. Therefore, there's no value in making a poster about some you know, issue whose only message is, look at how messed up this shit is and how terrible things are, right? Yeah, people know that. People don't need to be reminded of that. What, people, what we need to know is that there are ways that we can do something. There are forms of resistance, right? And if I'm looking at an issue and I can't figure out where the hope is, where the spark is, I'm not yet qualified to make a poster about that. I need to do some studying. But I really do believe that there is no situation so bad that there's nothing, um, there's no course of action, right? And 
I say this in part having read interviews with people who survived the Nazi con concentration camps, where the um, environment, especially during times of heavier repression, because even there it ebbed and flowed, um, that you know there seemed to be no hope at all, and you could get severely punished even by being kind to a fellow prisoner, that even keeping the memory alive of a time early in my life where people were kind to each other was a form of resistance because it could keep you sane in case someday things changed and you could get out of there, right? So it's based on, it's storytelling, it's based on hope. So what I'm saying is that if that's the case, if people could take that kind of action, even if it did not seem like action from the outside, and that allowed them to survive with their humanity intact, then any situation we're in can be one where there's some, some degree of agency, right? Uh, I read about a animal called the fairy shrimp. The fairy shrimp lives in the sand in the Mojave Desert. That's a shrimp, right? In the Mojave Desert, right? Um, used to be an ocean. And the way it survives is that once a year, there's a rainy season that might last as long as two weeks. And if they can be awakened by a puddle that lasts two weeks, they can go through their entire reproductive cycle lay some eggs and go back into the sand for another year, right? So, you know, if, if they can, you know, make a life out of that kind of scarcity of resources, I think a lot of people I know are doing just a little bit too much complaining about scarcity. <laughs> Oof. Balance, y'all. Balance. <laughs> uh -huh. It's okay to know that all balls don't bounce. <laughs> mm. Thank you, Ricardo. I mean... This was a, uh, a pleasure and, and an honor to be invited into your studio today mm -hmm. and uh, have a chat with you. We really well, appreciate certainly. it. Appreciate you coming. Thank you so much, Ricardo Levens Morales. We had a blast. We're definitely, we, we definitely uh, don't come on, come on the show to complain, but, you know, what are you tired of hearing lately? What am I tired of hearing? Uh, <laughs> I feel like what I'm tired of hearing lately is, um, <laughs> oh, I already, I, <laughs> this is like oddly specific. I feel like what I'm tired of hearing is, oh, sorry, I'm already, I'm busy that time, which is like when I tell people about events or places to show up and people have been like, oh, I, I got something going on. It's like. Maybe the one out of a hundred of those things is something you can't move, but nine times out of ten, you hmm. just you just don't want to you just don't want to throw a little wrench in your night to like make it there. So I think I think I'm t I'm tired of hearing those things. Yeah, man, that, that, that I think that weighs you down because you want. I mean, it takes a certain amount of energy mm. to to show up. I mean, that's obvious. Mm -hmm. um, but it's so much easier when you got your community and your people there with you, right? Like that, it just like, it's life giving to see people sharing those, those moments with you. Yeah. I think, um, <clears throat> I think, uh, obviously when you, if you talk about the resistance and that, that whole showing up aspect, uh, showing up has obviously hit a low. It's also important that, uh, we can't control the news 
and the fucked up shit that's thrown in our face, whether it's like the Affordable Care Act, DACA, um, and even even this recent um, tragedy in Somalia. I mean, mm. you know, we <laughs> we have a, such a vibrant and, and amazing and beautiful Somali community uh, in in Minneapolis and, and, you know, one of our representatives, uh, Representative Ilhan Omar in the State House here in Minnesota, uh, you know, I believe, you know, we weren't there, like, um, you know, but I believe she had an event tonight and I think mm-hmm. there's going to be more ways to show up um, for solidarity, for healing and other things around that tragedy in Mogadishu. And yeah, like to your point, I mean, you know, sometimes if you or I can't show up to something, I know if I can't show up to something, I, like, try even harder to get people to show up to something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, maybe that's just, just like, a, a, get, you know, for me to get rid of some of the guilt that I can't be there. But I'll try harder to say, you should go to this, you should be there. Um, I would be. And I, you know, you can't tell me, like, all seven of us can't be there. One of, one of y'all, like, that's your point, right? Like, yeah. one of y'all gotta, gotta say, yeah, you know, yes to showing up. And I think that uh, that's important um, because I want... You know, you want close friends of yours. Obviously, we all can't show up to everything, but it'd be nice if uh, someone we're close to can give us a report back on mm-hmm. on um, an action or something like an event or something uh, worth showing up to. So you can get a report back from a close friend so you, you can guarantee yourself a continued conversation about these important issues and these important uh, current events that uh really take take a huge effect on our communities and you, a lot of times not the best way yeah. so um, yeah. and I hear you there I hear you <laughs> and as always for any artists out there we're wondering what is your weapon of choice and for everybody else listening what art are you taking in that's helping you continue the fight you can email your answers to those questions to Weapon of Choice Fans at gmail.com. That's Weapon of Choice Fans at gmail.com. Our featured song today, I'm thrilled to say, is the one and only Renee Copeland. And this song is called Carpet. Uh, we really hope you enjoy it. So that'll be coming up to take us out of here. Thanks for listening, everybody. We love you. We'll see you next week. Side of the road, yeah.
Drill.